Hey, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about Facebook Gaming's Genre and Great Games report. As guests, we have Kyle Rinelli, Vertical Insights Marketing Strategist from Facebook, and Joel Julgren, Head of Game Analysis from Game Refinery. Now, Genre and Great Games report came out a few weeks ago. It's an 88-page long deep dive into four key mobile genres, strategy games, RPGs, puzzle, and hyper-casual games. The report focused on four key countries, US, UK, Japan, and Korea, so you get a very nice worldwide view, and it's structured in a way that it gives a deep dive based on genre characteristics, community, in-app purchase preferences, and ad monetization. Hope you enjoyed this episode, hope you enjoy the insights, and hope you download the report and connect with our great guests. So, without further ado, Kyle Rinaldi and Yoel Yulkunen. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle Renali, Vertical Insights Marketing Strategist at Facebook IQ. So Kyle, welcome. That's a quite a mouthful of a title. It is. Yes. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for having me on here. But um, yeah, so my role at Facebook IQ, so I work on the global vertical insights team uh, and specifically on the gaming vertical. So we work with our research partners to conduct global research into consumer behavior to really understand uh, what motivates mobile gamers to play mobile games, what are some expectations they have and attitudes as they go about their gaming experience. I mean, really uh, surface those insights through the industry, uh, making sure that our clients are aware of sort of the latest trends and insights um, across the gaming world. Um, and yeah, that's uh, kind of a, a little bit of a summary of sort of my role and what I do at uh, Facebook. Awesome. And then we have Joel. And I thought Joel was returning guest, but now this is your first time. So Joel Yulkunen, Head of Game Analysis at Game Refinery. Welcome, Joel. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So, so for those who don't know what Game Refinery does, what do you guys do? Uh, well, in essence, we are kind of a data provider for the, for the industry, uh, working through SaaS platform. Uh, and where we kind of, uh, our, our expertise lies mostly on feature data. So uh, we have a huge database about what kind of features and game mechanics uh, work across regions or genres, uh, what kind of uh, features are trending. So kind of, uh, I would say very design and designer oriented data. Of course, on top of that, we nowadays, uh, we also provide lots of other kind of market data like revenues and downloads, of course, and uh, motivation, demographic data and, and that sort of, sort of stuff. Yeah, so wealth of insights. I've been using Game Refiner for at least almost three years now. Everything you need to know about features you can find from, from the Game Refiner platform. So uh, yeah, a wealth of data. Uh, and when it comes to data, so Facebook, released this genre and great games report. I don't know if I've seen such a big report come in from Facebook, just focusing on games. Usually it's been like a couple of pages here and there, kind of covering the market as a whole, but this was like 88 pages, really deep dive and focusing on four key mobile genres. You've got strategies, RPG, puzzle games, and of course, hyper casual. And then it was focused also on, on four different countries. So you got the US, course and then UK, uh, Japan and Korea. So very diverse look at the market and it was structured in a way that you had a deep dive based on genre characteristics, the community, in-app purchase preferences as well as ad monetization. So Kyle, who is this report for and how does how did this report come to be? 
Um, yeah, so essentially, uh, we built the report, I guess, uh, taking a step back, just a little bit of context. So um, last year, uh, every year, so the um, Facebook gaming team puts together an annual um, marketing trends report. Um, and last year was the inaugural um, report that we launched at the end of the year. And one of the trends that we focused on was uh, genre diversification. So players that were expanding sort of their genre portfolios, uh, tapping in from everything from, you know, mid-core to casual genres and um, really kind of like expanding their, you know, what they're interested in from the mobile gaming sphere. So we thought it was a really interesting trend to dig into further. Um, and so to expand on that insight, we um, really wanted to uh, conduct specific research around that um, that topic uh, to go a little bit further into like what what the phenomenon was happening. So um, we decided to connect a global survey of th over 13,000 mobile gamers across 11 different countries and uh, segmented them across 27 different subgenres to really get very specific into like what are the player characteristics and motivations across all um, kind of, you know, genres that um, we, we, we can sort of capture from like a, a survey standpoint. Um, at the same time, our APAC counterparts were working with the Game Refinery team to sort of conduct some masterclass sessions to really sort of unpack, um, you know, sessions and understanding more around genre and um, different sort of analysis based on game features. And we really thought it was a unique opportunity as we were conducting our consumer research and um, the Game Refinery team sort of having their expertise, expertise within the space from game feature analysis to really bring the two work streams together to really have the best of understanding sort of player motivations and insight um, and really taking it a step further into like, how can you make it really actionable for game developers to create uh, great new games from like understanding player motivations and knowing the right features to really address those motivations. So the report itself is uh, intended for uh, developers who are either within the markets that are in the report or interested in exporting games uh, to those markets, um, typically within the small to medium sized business kind of realm, um, but really just want to understand how to really design and market and create and launch uh, great new games across the four genres that we cover um, with really actionable insights throughout the report. Mm, super interesting. And, and so, yeah, okay. So you work, and Kyle, you're based out of New York, if I'm correct. Yep, that's correct. And you work with the uh, the Singapore team. So that's that seems like there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of moving parts. So, you know, Facebook taking it really seriously since there's many locations and game refineries in there. So you, you actually mentioned you had 28 subgenres in that, in the initial way that you were looking. So what kind of taxonomy were you using for it? Just interesting in taxonomies and whatnot. <laughs> um, we actually aligned uh, to, at the time, the Game Refinery taxonomy. Um, I know since then there were some updates, so um, a little bit, not complete apples to apples um, from the beginning. So I think the survey was fielded a little bit before some of the changes were made, but that's essentially the taxonomy that we were aligning to. Perfect. Yeah, I, I really like the Game Refinery taxonomy. It's a, it's a really solid one and it's keep keep on improving. So so yeah, just, just you know, trying to understand which one you're using because a lot of companies have different taxonomies and it's, yeah, makes it easier to understand. Uh, so, so what was the, uh, the methodology? Um, yeah, so the methodology, uh, I touched on a little bit lightly, but uh, essentially there were a few moving parts to how this report came to life. So uh, the first aspect kind of spurring off of the trend report from last year is that dedicated piece of um, survey-based sort of consumer research that we fielded um, to generally kind of gauge and understand those behaviors across like the different genres based on the game refinery taxonomy. 
Um, we also, uh, through Facebook internal data, had some SDK data kind of findings on like behavioral insights of how mobile gamers were, um, you know, uh, downloading new games, the number of games that they were sort of, sort of playing, and then also some genre migration that was really nice complementary insight to kind of add an additional layer to some of the survey-based findings that we had from the, the sort of overarching um, piece of research that fueled the report. Um, and so we sort of, at least initially, sort of analyzed those behaviors and those insights from those core pieces of research. Um, and at the same time, uh, was looping in the Game Refinery team to really understand um, what were some of the key trends and insights that they were finding from a uh, feature analysis standpoint across the, the genres that we were looking into. And then it was almost a mapping exercise of, you know, we understand these player motivations, um, you know, there are some opportunities or gaps in some expectations here. Uh, what features, you know, do you guys recommend based on your expertise and what you're seeing to really sort of complement and add to these kind of, um, you know, these motivations that we can then map those kind of insights to those actionable points. Um, and that's sort of the exercise we went through for each genre and uh, at a country level to really understand sort of what are those key things that developers need to be aware of um, from a holistic standpoint. Um, and I know, um, speak to it in a little bit more specifically, but I think the way it was done, um, and you all can uh, speak to this a little bit further, was that from a feature standpoint, looking at it from like a key and a basic features to really identifying what sets the top games apart um, in, in order to achieve success within the genre uh, landscape. Okay, so th that's that's a lot of work. I, I mean, that sounds really interesting. So, you all, how how did you how how did you integrate with how did you work with Facebook and use, especially using this this behavioral insights and marrying that together with with the feature insights that you guys have? Yeah, the whole project was really really interesting uh, for us. Of course, being able to work with company like Facebook and then of course uh, being able to exchange uh, kind of ideas and, and viewpoints from the from the huge amount of data that we together had <clears throat> so uh, of course it was a lot of work but once we kind of find found our our goal or target of the report which was actually to not only to showcase data and what is going on in the market but kind of uh, tie down to actionable insights like concrete examples of okay this is how the data looks and you as a designer, this is what you can do on, on a concrete level, even on a feature implementation level. So in that, that uh, way, I would say this report as a whole uh, was really, really great exercise. Um, something that I haven't done before. Uh, I never had this amount of data uh, in my hands. And I think uh, the cooperation with Facebook team was really, really fruitful. And, uh, and as a result, um, I would say that the, that the um, report and as a whole is a good kind of... Um, viewpoint are going to peek into all of these main genres and then understanding the behavior of the players tying down to features tying down to implementation of those features and then of course also understanding like what Kyle, Kyle said that kind of the differentiation of, of what the top games are doing and then what everybody is doing. I get it. So why did you choose these four genres particularly? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I would have personally loved to feature all the 27 genres in the 11 countries, <laughs> but I mean, the report would be, we'd still be reading it now and it launched like a month ago. So um, unfortunately we, we had to prioritize at some point. Um, and I think early on we, we, we prioritized the markets and the genres uh, primarily from like a diversity sort of landscape of like having a spectrum 
across, um, you know, especially core and casual kind of having like a couple key genres that we've identified that um, at least based on client feedback and, and some, um, you know, developers that we work with were sort of top priorities to kind of focus on. Um, and then also had sort of an interesting angle or differentiation, even looking through the data too, I think we noticed some um, notable differences and, and sort of key insights that pop for those four genres in particular. And then from a geographic kind of, um, you know, perspective, we wanted to make sure that we had representation across Europe, uh, Asia, and North America. And again, kind of focused in um, based on some of the priorities from like where our clients are based or interested kind of in launching some some new games, like picking some of these core markets um, to really kind of pluck out some insights and especially having that sort of East to West comparison to show like, you know, what some differences are from, you know, the Japanese market versus the US market, for example, even within the same genre and sort of teasing apart those types of insights, especially for developers looking to launch games internationally that may not be familiar with a certain market. So really um, identifying and laying the landscape for if you're going to launch a strategy or puzzle game, for example, in a market you're not familiar with, these are sort of the, the key kind of insights and features to know in order to do that successfully. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they all make sense. Like strategy and RPG, one of the biggest in terms of in-app purchases, and then puzzle is gigantic and hyper-casual. Everybody keeps talking about it. So totally makes sense. But I was just curious, like, why these four? So, right, we talked about how the report came to be. Uh, we talked about, yeah, in, in all the depths. So let's talk about the uh, the genre insights. Um, uh, which, which genre do you want to start off first? All right, I can choose RPG. <laughs> so, so what was if if we start off with going in in kind of all three, all four genres that you have in this report, and kind of like briefly view it, what would be the sort of a most interesting points that came out for the RPG element of it? I, I assume it's big in Asia, and it's been growing a lot in the West. A lot of influences coming in from the uh, from the Asian games, and they're being adopted in, into these Western games a lot of IP, a lot of everything. So that's, that's I think that's a very interesting um, genre. So what were the, uh, what were the sort of a takeaways from, from the report? Oh, yeah, um, oh, sorry, uh, you wanna go first, Joel? Well, yeah, I can start from, at least from the feature, kind of feature and designer perspective. And, and uh, I would say that uh, if you look at the RPG genre as a whole, and then you divide it into subgenres, and you look at which, which subgenres are popular across different regions, I would say that it's pretty interesting to see that uh, West is still a really, really hard market for MMORPGs, action RPGs, which of course are then much more successful in, in uh, uh, Korea, um, and also MMORPGs even in Japan. But that's kind of, a, if you go into a really high level, that's pretty, pretty interesting takeout. And then if you, if you zoom, zoom into the kind of RPG games that are, for example, successful in the West, there's a lot of reliance on IPs, uh, whether or not they are kind of Western IPs like Marvel or Star Wars, uh, or they might be kind of manga anime IPs like Seven Deadly Sins, which is pretty new, pretty new hit, hit title by Net, Netmarble, making it, uh, of course, really successful in Asia, but also uh, now in the, in, the, in the Western markets. Um, and that, of course, makes sense if you think about the IPs and, and RPGs, especially turn-based RPGs, which kind of rely more on the collecting and, and getting your team. If you have an IP, uh, which your players identify, and if the IP even has kind of rich roster of characters, uh, you can turn those characters into playable heroes um, that players can collect, and, and it kind of it's a perfect fit. Um, so that's that's another uh, good good kind of I would say takeout. And then if you go to a feature level, actual actual feature level, I would say 
there's really high emphasis on events as in all mobile games. But what it means in terms of RPG is, is that um, it's a lot about event-related characters, event-related gotchas, and event currencies. And then, tie, then tying that event and, and event content and in, in, incentivizing players to play those events to get, for instance, event currencies, to roll those event gotchas, to get those specific exclusive event versions of their favorite heroes. Uh, for instance, you can play Dragon Ball Z, Dokkan Battle, and, and then you hit this really big event. Dokkan Battle, of course, is really really well known for those big events that spike the revenues every time they appear. Um, and then you love playing with Goku, let's say, for instance, and then the event has special, special Goku character and, and that, that is really easy to monetize. So that is something that uh, even though all mobile games uh, nowadays, they, they love to have those live events because players, of course, uh, get engaged when those are, are running. Uh, RPGs are really, really, at least when you're looking at top RPGs, they are really kind of, uh, know how to kind of uh, use those events and everything event related um, to their advantage. Yeah, I, I find RPGs just interesting because there's so many ways to succeed and it seems like everything goes as long as there's enough depth. You have RPGs with great IPs, you have RPGs without IPs, you have RPGs mm. in amazing 3D art like Raid Shadow Legends and then you have just pretty simple 2D, um, 2D art game like AFK Arena and some other ones. Um, yeah, basically, basically everything goes. And um, what what were the sort of a key takeaways in terms of acquiring these players? Because I feel like that's one of the most uh, difficult part is is not not only making a successful deep enough RPG game, but but actually uh, acquiring the the type of players that uh, would be engaging with this type of game for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think from like a motivational kind of standpoint, I think RPG, at least based on kind of in comparison to some of the other genres, was pretty unique in the sense of, so the way that we looked at some uh, motivational kind of genre fulfillment type lens of, of the data was looking at why people play uh, these types of mobile games, but then how well do these, type, do these uh, games within the genre deliver against this motivation? And I think RPG in particular, more so than um, any of the other genres, actually over-delivered in a lot of um, key motivations, such as, you know, feeling, making yourself feel immersed in sort of another character or world or, you know, relieving stress or um, kind of like having that sort of escapism type nature, which I know obviously um, has been sort of a, a big focus, especially in the last couple months um, in terms of, uh, you know, all the crazy stuff that's been going on. But also I think it's um, interesting that that's um, kind of like a little bit nuanced within this genre. Um, but yeah, I'd say, I mean, in terms of like also um, some other interesting trends that we saw from at least the, uh, the initial data, like from uh, the user standpoint, was we actually saw some interesting um, trends in terms of migration. We, I think generally across the report, when we looked at from a genre player, we, what other types of genres are they downloading? Uh, interestingly, RPG players were also um, interested in all playing or most likely to be downloading casual and hyper casual games, which was kind of unique um, and a little bit surprising because um, we, uh, you know, you'd assume or a lot of times it's easy to kind of pigeonhole a player within one genre, but a lot across a lot of the um, genres that we were looking into, we did notice that there was like an openness and even actual like behavioral insight that showed that they were kind of diversifying the types of games they were playing against as well. Um, and so part of that was kind of shown 
Shonen, um, another kind of interesting insight that came out of the RPG section was um, focusing on uh, monetization. And, you know, whereas, you know, IEPs and stuff kind of reign, you know, supreme within the RPG world, there's actually a really growing openness to like in-game ads um, and also too aggressive sort of uh, pushing of IEPs can scare some players away. Um, so offering sort of a mixed monetization model of offering in-app ads potentially to sort of complement some of those IEPs was something that I think a, a majority of RPGers were actually really um, open to receiving and could actually be kind of interesting for uh, developers to explore as well. So those were a few kind of core kind of thoughts or insights based on um, the RPG kind of analysis. That's that's really interesting. So RPG players playing actually more and more casual games. It's not something that that when you look at the normal taxonomy, you kind of, you know, put RPG games, you put all the subgenres together, and you assume that they play these, maybe some other type of games, but but the fact that they're playing casual games, is it so let's let's jump into puzzle games. And I know that one of the key motivations when when players play puzzle games is escapism. And you mentioned that escapism is also a big part of RPG players. So um, can you talk about a little bit more insights on, on casual games and, and let's see if there's there's correlation in terms of the motivation and player behavior? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I think that was a common theme that I thought was pretty interesting across all genres is like relieving stress and um, also like passing time in between daily activities where like core motivations pretty consistently across genre. And I think it's even more emphasized, you know, given the pandemic's effect on mobile gaming, um, where that sort of desire for um, escapism to relieve stress or just generally, you know, having more time for entertainment based activities um, is really kind of even accelerated um, across the mobile gaming landscape across genres. Um, uh, and there were some interesting kind of nuances from the puzzle world. So I think a lot of them were a little bit more functional based motivations, like kind of fulfilling those needs. Um, but then also, especially when you look at some of the word brain um, or board game kind of games or, you know, physics puzzle type games, really uh, learning something new was actually an interesting motivation for playing those types of games as, as well. And in some cases, a motivation that wasn't quite as fulfilled as um, some of the other motivations. So really an opportunity to kind of like, you know, maybe potentially look into the areas where you can deliver on that type of motivation um, to help players kind of uh, feel a little bit more fulfilled. Um, and also too, I think generally, um, one of the hypotheses that we have across genre is, you know, a lot of times when you ask people why they stop playing mobile games, it's because they get bored or they're not making enough progress. A lot of it could be tied back to sort of not meeting expectations when it comes to these key motivations. So a lot of boredom could be tied to, you know, maybe you're not feeling like you're in the puzzle world, you know, learning something that, or you're just getting kind of bored with the same repetitive nature of the game um, itself. Where in the RPG world, it might be, you know, like abandoning a game because, you know, progress isn't as quick as you'd like it to be, or you're not getting that sense of accomplishment that, you know, you, you feel like you should be getting from completing a difficult task or challenge. Um, so I think that that's really core, especially focusing on these key motivations and how to address with the, these each of these with the right features in order to keep and retain players long term. Mm. Uh, Yo, can you talk about some of the features that are really important for the the puzzle games then um, that that address these type of motivations? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think uh, what Carl mentioned the repetitiveness of of the uh, being one of the one of the reasons for churn uh, is something that I think the top top puzzle games. And now I'm of course. Uh, focusing a lot of on the match three puzzle games because they make make so huge chunk of of the puzzle games but other puzzle games as well um, is that they've been adding a lot of kind of progressive mechanics and and kind of um, horizontal content to the games and from feature perspective this can translate to a couple of 
interesting features, which actually uh, are originating from the more mid-core games. One, of course, uh, is guild, guild mechanics or team mechanics, uh, which is really trending up. Uh, started, I would say, to last year, Playrix started to implement those two, gardenscapes, homescapes, and then everybody kind of followed suit. Um, Wordscapes also, from let's, if you go to other puzzle genres, uses that mechanic. Um, and that is, of course, something that kind of uh, introduces more social and community aspects to the game. Um, and also gives you kind of, uh, I would say, more layers to the whole experience. And, and, and how these games usually have done this is that they first roll out the really easy, light version of the team or guild mechanics. So no, nothing like for strategy games or RPGs. They're kind of just chatting away, um, asking help, sending lives, whatever. But then they kind of, uh, kind of um, add up more stuff, uh, team tournaments for competitive aspects, um, team chess for co-op tasks, uh, just another way of kind of bringing new kind of a content. Uh, one other, other big, big feature is, is uh, believe it or not, battle pass system or season pass as it's usually called in, in masteries. Um, it's also seen a huge uh, increase in popularity. Uh, last time I checked, it's like 30% of all mastery games in, in top one crossing in, in the US have this, uh, this mechanic. And it's uh, why it works so well, I think, it's, it's because it's pretty easy to understand. So if you think about casual, casual gamers, um, it's a monetizing and also engagement mechanic that's it's pretty easy to understand. And it's tied to the normal core game loop, but it doesn't mess up the core game. It, it, it's kind of on the sidelines and it also increases engagement through uh, giving kind of longer term goals. Uh, so you have more things to kind of strive for. Um, so that's, that's another big, if you, if you have to pick single features uh, that are trending. Um, and then of course, everybody, if you look at any, download any top puzzle, especially mastery puzzle game, um, and you start the game, uh, you're gonna be seeing like three live events running at the same time. So it's, it's like this re recurring smaller events, uh, kind of a streak events, uh, whatever, everybody's using this to give kind of a um, diversity or kind of fresh experiences to the, to the gamer. And then every now and then they bring like a bigger, we call them non-recurring or unique event, uh, which again brings, uh, let's say new decorative items to get or new themes or new visuals or new storylines in, in games like a Gardenscape, for instance. So there are a lot of these, um, I would say even almost mid-coreish features um, that, uh, the best mastery game, puzzle games and other puzzle games as well are using. So as I said, Wordscape is using all sorts of themes and it's a great foundational feature that then allows you to introduce more different kinds of um, uh, engaging features to the game as, as you go by. Mm, okay, so th that has been trend for, for several years now where, where puzzle games have been becoming um, well, adding mid-core features, just becoming more and more engaging and, and it's uh, stark changed to what was before when when players were playing several puzzle games at the same time and they would run out of lives in one game go to the second favorite and third favorite and kind of switch around the order but would play several ones and is is the like i i don't know but is the trend more, going more towards player players playing only one game because that one game has everything and and has such a prolonged session due to all these mechanics um is there any data around that uh, well, I don't have any kind of, uh, we haven't done that kind of uh, explicit research, but there's, I think there's some truth in that, I think for sure. Um, and of course, also, if you think about it, just like you said, if, if you could get um, 
all these things from one package, it, at least it, it lowers, oh, I mean, increases the barrier of, of hopping on, onto the other one. So it drives the increase the engagement. And this is, of course, great from the developer's perspective. At, at least if you are talking about um, your players jumping into your competitors' games. So that's, I think that there's something, some truth in there. Yeah. Sure. That's that's a big problem in, in puzzle games these days is that the, uh, not these days, but it's been for a while now that it's really expensive to acquire those players. So that's why we're not seeing a lot of new puzzle games scaling up. So because scaling up is so expensive, they choose to a lot, add a lot of mechanics to keep their players for longer and longer time. And then those type of mechanics that fit with the, uh, with the profiles of the, pro, not profiles, but the motivations of the players. So. Um, so since we're talking about engaging mid-core features, uh, let's talk about strategy games. I mean, they have literally all the features um, <laughs> that you can imagine. So what were the sort of a key insights from, from the strategy category? And I assume it's going to be skewed towards the 4X type of games, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. 4X strategy, of course, it's, it's by far the biggest strategy subgenre, I would say. If you think about uh, for example, U.S. strategy games, it's about 70% of all of the revenue, even, even more. Um, and I think one interesting thing is that if you look at the Western Forex market and you look at the top titles, there are a lot of, lot of our Forex games in top one crossing, for example. But most of them are from originating from Asia, uh, all, like Final Plus, IGG. There are a lot of games um, that are kind of are have come here and, and they're doing, doing really well. And I think um, one inside from feature, feature perspective and, and it's an interesting thing, um, especially for Forex strategy games, is, is that when, when we talked about with the puzzle games that they are implementing kind of, let's say more complex mid-core features, however you want to call them, uh, many of these Forex games that are successful are, I think they're kind of, trying to find new audiences by making the games, I, I don't, it, they're not making them simpler, but they are making them easy, more easy to approach by um, implementing, for example, RPG layers or other kind of layers that, that are not as hardcore as the traditional 4X where you are training units and all, all the time waging war against the whole world. Um, if you take State of Survival, which is the newest uh, top, top title, uh, it's it's uh, it's how they have done it is they also have the kind of character hero layer and it's almost like tower defense or line defense core layer or the core gameplay that you can also play so you don't always have to have to think about who is attacking my base and who shall i attack and and, and even though if you like kind of um, uh, competitive playing you can always go to the a bit easier to understand um, rpg layer and train your heroes and fight those AI controlled zombies. So that's that's kind of one one big thing that we've seen across, especially across this Asian originating um, forexes. And of course, then then we have um, uh, Scopely's uh, Star Trek Fleet Command, which is pretty new as well. It's a whole different take on the forex genre from from the core game perspective because it's not about training armies. It's about uh, building ships and and exploring the space and. Uh, and completing these almost like story-driven missions, which is, uh, I would say, from motivational perspective, it, it kind of appeals to new audience, or, or and, and it can even appeal to the same audience, but kind of triggering different motivations on those players as well. I personally, for instance, really like that kind of uh, 
take on the forex uh, genre yeah i i find forex pretty fascinating and and not only not only because of the size of the market but just uh, because of almost the perfect competition in the market unlike in puzzle or uh, rpg you you see several you see the top being dispersed among many 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 games so the number one game probably rise of kingdoms is controlling like 17 percent of the of the total market which is stark difference to you know what candy crush has of the total market or or the player x games and so forth so uh kyle why do players play forex games like we i can imagine why people play casual puzzle games you know you have your typical moms kind of taking a break and just or playing while watching Netflix RPGs. You're collecting all these heroes, whether you like Star Wars, whether you like, you know, Marvel, whether you just want to, you know, some kind of an idle progression. You feel really productive as the game is kind of playing for you and getting a lot of new stuff. But why would somebody play such a crazy game like a strategy game where you're stressed out? You have to wake up in the middle of the night, to send troops to somebody. Uh, there's <laughs> messages going all around. What is the motivation? Yeah, so I think there are there is, so there are several uh, motivations for the genre itself. So I think the two sort of core ones that stand out are um, you know feeling accomplished uh, after completing something challenging, um, and then also the competitive nature of defeating others in in competition are sort of core motivations within this genre. I think uh, as you sort of spoke to before, um, the social aspect of it really makes it also sort of a, a key kind of motivator as well, since there is so much sort of communal influence uh, within the strategy genre. And it's actually, um, last year we dug into this sort of phenomenon a little bit of what we called like community gamers, which are people who play gaming solely for pretty much the motivation of like enjoying time spent with family, friends or whatever, and almost leveraging like gaming or the genre itself as like an extension of like a way to keep in touch with others or to like bond over an activity that you have a shared interest in. So those are sort of, I think, some of the key reasons why people do that. And it's also a very powerful sort of motivator as well, especially the communal aspect of it, of like what motivates someone to try a new game. So like a social influence, if your your friends are playing the game, it's more likely to sort of influence your decision to try it. Also impacts sort of your decision to churn or, or stop playing a game if your friends stop playing that game and move on to another one. So I think that's sort of a crucial sort of component of it as well. And even within the research, uh, we know strategy players, while they do have their sort of more immediate community, um, they really want to welcome like developers and gaming brands into that community as well. So the vast majority want to hear from developers and marketers within the gaming space to understand like, you know, what they're doing, give, giving new updates or features within the game, um, you know, tips and tricks into like what they could be doing differently to like optimize their strategies within the game. Um, so it's really sort of a really um, widespread sort of net when it comes to community that's really important um, within the genre specifically. Yeah, I have to agree. The community is an important part. Having played uh, quite a lot of strategy games, it's it's almost daunting to start playing a new one because once you start rising up in, in the ranks and you become a part of some kind of a guild that is more prominent, then they kind of force you to, I mean, it forces you to work really hard to stay in that guild because you're you're afraid they will kick you out if you're not pulling your own weight. And if you kick, if it's kind of like, I don't know, it's like a social pressure social pressure to execute to these people who you don't even know and they're asking you to do more work and they live around the world so you have to wake up in the middle of the night and help people out it's it's so stressful that's what i was asking like why do people play uh so another question regarding strategy personal interest is like how many games of the same genre uh play like like 
how many strategy games at the same time do strategy games players? Is it do they play only one or do they play several ones? So that's an interesting question. I think the data, we don't have the exact data to mm -hmm. sort of answer that question. We do know, I think, based on the research that the average strategy player, at least self-reportedly, says they play anywhere from three to four games at a, at a given time. Um, and I think generally across the markets, again, this is a little bit broader than strategy, but uh, I believe in the US, UK, and Korea, like people report playing an average of two genres. Japan, I think it was maybe three genres. So I think in the kind of, at least within the kind of making that sort of com combining that those two data sets a little bit, I think it's potential that there are maybe a couple different strategy games. But however, um, you know, given the limited kind of nature of like the games as a whole, it might be the case where they might just be really uh, honed in on one specific strategy game, especially to your point of it is such a invested kind of experience that, um, you know, trying to sort of um, stretch that over multiple games at once within the same genre might be a little like too much to kind of work with. But um, again, the, the data we don't have, unfortunately, doesn't speak specifically, I guess, to the number of specific strategy games that they're playing within a given uh, time period. Got it. Got it. That, that makes sense. And, and usually strategy games, when they start falling, they fall pretty quickly because they start falling from the top. And if the, uh, the top guilds are fe feeling that, that the, uh, the developer is not listening to them or they're just you know, too money hungry, then they will just eventually leave. And once they leave, everybody leaves and then just plummets like a rock. So we've seen a couple of those happen uh, before and it's quite interesting. Um, all right, so let's talk about the, uh, the, the, the most different one of all genres, which is hyper-casual. Um, I'm curious, like, I understand why people would play hyper-casual games because it's so easy. It's one finger, one tap, um, looks kind of funny, has a skill element, but doesn't, it's not fun that it lasts because they're also skill-based. Um, but yeah, like, well, what, what are the takeaways? Because I'm, I'm amazed that the, uh, the hyper-casual business has been growing so much, um, you know, <laughs> despite, despite everything, so. Yeah, I think this one was the one that was most sort of surprising and interesting, at least from my perspective as well, because um, I think from like a motivational standpoint, when we looked at hyper casual players, um, again, very different than a lot of the other genres that we focused on. But um, you, you expect a lot of the more like functional, like very like, you know, repetitive sort of behavior of almost having like experience of almost like a mindless kind of activity to like play hyper casual games. But surprisingly, there were a lot of emotional uh, and, uh, and social reasons why hyper casual players said that they liked playing mobile games that were sort of a big, lot of opportunities that um, were kind of, you know, potential as uh, you all pointed out earlier, like there are some opportunities to bring in more features within this kind of genre that sort of speak to those motivations. So things like being uh, able to connect with friends or other people um, while playing the game or, you know, being dazzled by something unique potentially um, or having some a little bit of more of excitement, I guess, within the gameplay were some interesting kind of areas that um, kind of pop from a motivational standpoint that we didn't previously expect. And I think where um, some at the moment, you know, within the game itself, like community uh, is a little bit less of a priority in the current state. I think when we ask the question of like, would you be open to sort of more community or socially engaged behaviors with fellow players, like, uh, you know, like being able to message or look at a leaderboard or compare scores or that sort of thing. There actually was a decent amount of interest from players from that standpoint, showing some opportunity that there might, could be some unmet needs uh, that developers can consider when it looks uh, to this genre as well. Uh, interesting because uh, they like most of these games have fake multiplayer even 
<laughs> it's just like they they might seem that you're playing with others but you're actually not um mm -hmm. but, so so how does it does it work in hyper casual in a way that so i've only played hyper casual because my friends have played some of the games and they would it was basically word of mouth when they would say hey this is really cool like clank for example was i think that's quality game and they would say like hey this is really cool looking and you would say like oh yeah it is and then you start playing it for a while and does it work in a way that you end up in this loop or <laughs> rabbit hole of hyper casual games because none of these games hold for too long but in these games there's so many ads of other similar games <laughs> so so they kind of get you you're never bored because there's always five new ones that you can start playing really quickly is that is that the case that that these players are playing more of the games of the same genre um, I, I think like you're, yeah, I think that like totally makes sense. Again, we don't have the data specifically yeah, to back, it. but it seems like, um, especially like given the easy nature it is to sort of change from one versus the other. And to your point, like in-game ads kind of consistently give you like a never ending flow of like other games that are similar that you could be interested in. Um, and especially as it's been such a growing phenomenon and especially like such a low barrier to entry with more mobile gamers entering into the space. Um, it seems like, you know, it's, it's prime for that type of behavior of like kind of quickly kind of testing and trialing different games uh, fairly often. And then whichever ones might stick for, you know, whatever given period of time will, will last, but then there seems to be higher churn um, as well, uh, given that sort of like model that it's based on. Hmm. And, and when you look at the uh, the data on the broader sense, there's there's always been this sort of a sentiment um, coming in probably from hyper casual publishers that 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 they kind of how would I put it? It's it's almost like a um, a gateway to gaming. <laughs> so it's like the easiest thing that you could do, and they start playing, and then they increase the amount of gamers on on platforms, and those gamers move on to the next game. Now I don't know how how well this is proven. I've seen some. UA data that that would counter in, in many ways that hyper casual players are not perhaps your uh, you know the type of players you're looking for because they're used to totally different games and they'd rather keep playing the same ones uh, but looking at your vast amount of data is it is is there signs that players from hyper casual games are migrating to other games or is it more vice versa where you have you know RPG players once in a while playing some, some hyper casual games to kind of to relax from the, uh, from the never ending grind. Yeah. From our uh, genre migration data that we um, have had actually, uh, you know, we did see some instances of hyper casual players. I think uh, a lot of times and kind of going back to your previous point, one of the, the top genre. So it, the way that it's kind of measured is like you're identified as a genre player based on this behavior, playing these types of games. And so what other genres are you installing um, on your phone to also test out? And other hyper casual was the uh, top genre that they were also installing, meaning that they're playing uh, at least another hyper casual game along with their current game that identified them as a hyper casual player. But beyond that, um, we actually saw that puzzle and action games were um, the second and third most likely genres that they were installing, suggesting um, almost like in a trajectory way of like, you know, starting with the hyper casual lens, but then puzzle maybe being like a step more into the mobile gaming world and then action oriented games um, kind of following after that. Um, so I think the data that we have access to suggests that there could be a likelihood of that sort of like stepping stone approach, mm -hmm. to like getting into um, games that might be a little bit more advanced. But your data doesn't show how well they stick in those games. So 
Okay. Yeah, so, unfortunately, so, unfortunately, we, uh, we don't have so, the full uh, insight so, into that. So it could be, or it could be that, that the ads from puzzle companies and the action companies are just performing really well in those and, and um, they're getting some of the traffic. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle um, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, but yeah. So you all, what are the, what are sort of a key features? Like where is this hyper casual market going? Because I noticed that Game Refinery has been adding more uh, sub genres into hyper casual uh, and kind of looking at the evolution and even looking at the games now there's everything. Like I just saw an ad for a fighting game that is a hyper casual game. I think that was from Supersonic. Uh, so <laughs> I almost installed because now it's getting like closer to, to what I'd be playing. <laughs> but, but yeah, so so what's the uh, what's the evolution of the genre? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, hyper casual games, uh, of course, like I said, Game Refinery focuses a lot of on the feature data and mechanics and hyper casual games. Uh, often have none or, or really, really kind of a few features uh, from kind of a, that perspective. But I, I think, uh, like like you said, Game Refinery, we, we've added to our genre taxonomy, we've added uh, several uh, different uh, sub-genres for the hyper-casual, mainly, mainly focusing on how the game is played, for example, if it's tapping game or steering game or puzzle game or or something else. And and it, I think uh, from that uh, that perspective, it's interesting to see that they are kind of uh, trend waves going on if you go to the top download chart and you look at what kind of hyper casual games are, are performing well uh, let's say one year or two years ago there were a lot of these like reaction based like um, helix jump and that kind of that kind of games then a while back they were like this kind of soap or you, you chisel some soap and wood blocks or whatever kind of kind of relaxing game kind of just get your mind away you you can't fail the levels or whatever and now there are a lot of kind of hyper casual puzzle games like really simple puzzle games going on so so there is uh, maybe it's because some of these games kind of gets huge amount of downloads and everybody copies it that's that's kind of the way it goes but then if you go to actual kind of features and game mechanics level um there is uh, some some i would say some trend towards uh having more complex features uh, with complex meaning that these hyper casual games are kind of migrating more towards casual casual games i, I think you guys kind of uh, coined the term hybrid casual at some, some yeah. point mean, meaning that uh, I, I think it's, it's uh, that's a really good pretty good term for it because uh, what we've seen that um there is uh, for sure there is that kind of a uh, trend going on um, Archero, Art of War, uh, Battle Legion, for example, are kind of really the core game is really really easy to easy to learn. I would say hyper casualish, and then but they have started to implement light meta elements, usually collectibles like some items, or if it's RPG layer like an Archero, uh, and and slowly built on 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 the meta and kind of adding, adding more flesh to the bones in in that way. So it's interesting to see and then. How it, how it evolves, of course, that opens up the IAP monetization support for the ad, ad monetization for the, from the developer's perspective. Um, but I think um, it, it might also be partly, this is just me throwing out ideas, uh, but Kyle mentioned that uh, some of these players, at least if you look at kind of really high level, tend to um, if they go from hyper-casual, they go towards casual. That could be because they, the hyper-casual are the first kind of games that they ever have played. And then, like in any industry, when, they, when the consumers uh, mature or the industry matures and the consumers get used to more, more content or whatever they usually want more. So it can be kind of a shift towards casual. Um, and then, of course, this, born of these hybrid-casual games in the same way that if 
we talked about the match tree puzzle games introducing guild mechanics or battle pass mechanics or or more engagement mechanics or kind of mid-course feature it can be part of the same same kind of shift um, that is taking taking hold but then of course uh, i've listened to your podcast miska of course about the future of of, of hyper casual and i think they of course there are a lot of a lot of challenges ahead but there are of course a lot of opportunities as we as we discussed yeah yeah so I, I, we have a lot of guests talking about it in in both in in both ways like a lot of the discussion has been around the idfv with the idfa depreciation and that that the um that's what i'm asking like how well these players move to different genres because if there's like there seems to be a clear indication that they're moving to more arcadey style games like you know archer being a good example of being able to acquire hyper casual users with extremely simple art style but then offering a little bit of a deeper gameplay and then casual games as well and if you start looking at playrix ads as a, well that's probably the best example they the ads are almost like these simple puzzle games like you mentioned yeah. there's usually the character that you have to save by dragging some pins which has nothing to do with, <laughs> with the game itself but actually, i understand yeah actually, they've added actually. it into the game i know i know they've yeah. added the playable yeah, yeah, add yeah, into yeah. the game yeah it's it's it's, it's <laughs> now they can say that it, it's actual game but it has nothing to do with the game <laughs> exactly but, but i understand that they are using tactics to lure the players out of these hyper casual games into their own game and that in in the sense that they're showing, like the Facebook data is showing that these players are moving to these different games. So it's, you know, it's unknown how well they perform, but nevertheless, it shows that signals. And that signal essentially means that the, um, in the future, the value of these companies with tens of millions of users, daily active users uh, can be way higher because that audience can be moved to um, arcade and, and casual games. So yeah just hypothesizing like well, what could be happening in the future and that kind of explains why Zynga would be acquiring uh, Rolex and so forth so mm, exactly uh, all right so we've gone through a lot of insights what would be the sort of a your top insights uh, from or one insight from from the report and I can start with mine uh, having read all the 88 pages and for me um, the the key insight not key insight but the one that really stood out it was that nearly half of the players say that genre is important when deciding which new mobile game to try, exceeding factors like friends or family recommendations and app store reviews. I think that was very big because that now speaks of the importance of the taxonomy uh, and importance of understanding the market, since that is actually really, really important element that, that makes player to download the game. Like that's even more important than your mom saying to download a game. <laughs> You're like, no, but I really like a shooter. And then you're just downloading that because you just happen to like that genre. So for me, that really stood out. And that was something new uh, that I wouldn't have expected. I always expected that friends uh, and family would be the key driver for, uh, for install decision or a decision to play a game. Uh, like virality has always been the most important thing. Uh, but I was wrong. So that was, a, that was a big learning for me. Yeah, I think uh, I agree. I mean, I, that was one thing that really stood out um, for me as we were going through the data. Um, to build on that, another one that I thought was sort of the key takeaway, and I think we've talked about it sort of throughout um, today's discussion, is really just like the cross-migration and in terms of motivations and expectations and features from core and casual games sort of kind of merging, uh, at least lightly in certain areas. So like, 
I know from the research itself, we asked people like how uh, for your next game that you're going to install, how definitively is it going to be the same genre as the ones that you're currently playing? And I think only about, you know, 20% or so said it's definitely going to be the same genre. So there's really is this expansion of opportunities that people have in terms of like wanting to explore different things, play different genres. And I think it's reflected a lot in the motivations and sort of the opportunities that we sort of touched on, whether it be adding more sort of social elements within the casual space or looking to potentially um, incorporate some findings and, uh, you know, and vice versa within the mid-core space. Um, but that was sort of a thing that really stood out, um, you know, for me as we were going through just all genres together is um, kind of that sort of migration pattern and, 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 and how that's sort of playing out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for me, actually, the power of, of genre was also the one one of the key key interesting points uh, because it's it affects so many areas of the whole game game industry, mobile game industry, and uh, from the game designers' perspective, it's it's also of course everybody who's working with games understands the kind of power of genre. But now it's when you have the data, uh, you can truly truly see how important it is, and and then of course uh, that highlights the highlights the uh, uh, need for for kind of robust genre taxonomy. Uh, but then if I <laughs> then go to a bit more detailed level, one thing that also popped up was uh, when I looked at the um, RPG, RPG and uh, data and, and how, what, what was the uh, kind of uh, attitude of players towards gotchas and loot boxes uh, in RPG. RPG, of course, uh, utilizing gotchas and loot boxes as the primary monetization method in many games. Um, I was pretty surprised that if, if you ask from the players themselves that if would you prefer making direct purchases or, or kind of randomized gacha purchases, um, even in Japan, which is the home of home of gachas, uh, almost kind of uh, in turn-based RPGs, almost 80% said that they would prefer uh, direct purchases, which of course makes sense if you think about it. Of course, the players themselves would love to get their favorite character uh, straight away uh, if, if it, they know it costs like five dollars or whatever but then it's it's another thing it's another kind of uh, uh, way of looking at it. what what actually is best for them from the monetization perspective and uh, best for the developer so that's kind of interesting just in terms of what the what the uh, what the user wants if you ask them and then uh, how they behave if you force them to behave in a certain certain manner is that was also kind of kind of interesting point awesome um Listen, guys, we, we barely scratched the surface in an hour, so I'll link the uh, the report here uh, in, in, in the episode notes. Yeah, and you can probably download from GameRefinery.com as well. That's true. So you can also <laughs> go to GameRefinery.com, and I actually was there, and you get a pop-up to, to download the report. Uh, yeah, the exact URL to get the report is fb.gg uh, backslash genre2020. Awesome. FB.GG. I didn't know that there was that kind of ending. Uh, all right. On that note, I, I really suggest that everybody goes and gets this report because there's just tons of insights. And as I said, we, we just scratched the surface by going through this. So I want to thank Kyle and I want to thank you all for, for joining the podcast and, and walking through, through the report and just getting, uh, at least I'm more excited to go through it again.